Hey guys, Madeline here. I have a quick announcement before we get to the episode. As some of you know, we recently launched our very first fundraising and publicity campaign as a nonprofit organization, which is super exciting. What does that entail? Well, it means that we are seeking your support in two different ways. Number one, we have a brand new professionally produced video trailer for the podcast. It is so beautiful and I am crossing my fingers it even chokes you up a bit. It has been known to do that. We are doing our best to blast this thing all over the internet in order to help more families find us. You can view the full version on our website, therarelife.org, or you can find the shortened version on our social media accounts, both on Instagram and Facebook. You can find us there by searching The Rare Life if you don't already follow. If you are willing to help us spread the word, we would love for you to share this trailer with your own circles. You never know who it could touch. Thank you in advance for doing that. And then the second part of this campaign is the fundraiser. This funding will enable us to continue to function and continue creating these life-giving episodes. We are humbly asking you, our beloved listeners, to consider donating to The Rare Life. And while one-time donations are super-duper helpful, this time around we are specifically requesting that you sign up for monthly recurring donations, much like the platform Patreon, because recurring is even more impactful than one-time donations. And we decided to shake things up a little bit and make it fun, and we are calling it the TRL Sticker Club. TRL stands for The Rare Life. Why are we calling it that, you may ask? Because if you sign up for a donation of at least $5 a month, you will receive a sticker as a thank you. And it's not just any old sticker, but a sticker exclusively designed by our incredible team member, Alyssa Newtile. We worked hard on these and hope that they will find their way to your child's medical equipment, your water bottles, or anywhere else you like to stick stickers. These sticker designs are inspired by our community and specifically the Rare Life community. So it is medical life meets mental health, trauma, talk about the hard stuff, life. (laughs) Alyssa created not one, but four different stickers. So if you sign up for the $5 a month, you get to pick out your favorite of the bunch to be sent to you. If you sign up for $15 a month, you get to pick out your favorite two stickers. And if you sign up for $30 a month or higher, you get to have all four sticker designs. I know you're probably dying to see them, or you should be because they're super awesome. So hop on over to our website, therarelife.org backslash sticker club so you can see the designs and sign up. And one last thing, it is the sense of urgency that you've been waiting for. The TRL Sticker Club will close on the last day of this fundraiser, which is November 28th. After that time, you are so welcome to make donations, but we will no longer be sending out stickers as thank yous. Our next Sticker Club fundraiser will open in six months with a fresh batch of exclusively designed stickers. For this first campaign that we're doing right now, it is our goal to have 100 TRL Sticker Club members which will fund 10 episodes of season nine, which is coming out in January. As of right now, we have 10 gracious sticker club members. Shout out to them. You know who you are. But we still have a ways to go to meet our goal of 100. Your contribution will make the difference. You can help us reach that goal. Every bit counts. So please pause this episode. Go check out therarelife.org backslash sticker club. Check out the stickers and consider signing up for a recurring donation to help us continue producing this incredible podcast. You guys, I've gotten the messages. I've heard how impactful this podcast and organization has been to you. So if you could now put your support behind us by sharing the trailer, joining the sticker club, or both, it would be so, so appreciated and help us continue doing what we're doing. All right, on to the episode. The world we live in is not kind to people with disabilities. The systems are not set up for them. Day by day, we hear more stories about the abuse suffered by children like my child. She's been loved her whole life, and even when it's hard, she's comforted by us. I can't imagine her having to suffer abuse and feeling unloved, but also not having the capability to understand why we aren't there anymore to love and protect her. 
Hello, you're listening to The Rare Life. I'm your host, Madeline Cheney. For our very last official episode of season eight, we have yet another conversation with Amanda Griffith Atkins, this time all about the emotions and fear that we have around the thought of our disabled child outliving us and not receiving the care that they deserve given by us. While the main goal is solidarity and help in kind of processing this extremely difficult prospect, we also offer some actions you can take now to feel a bit more prepared and to ease your anxiety around it. This is our 10th episode with the lovely and wise Amanda Griffith Atkins, but for those who are newer around here, I'll introduce her a bit. Amanda lives in the Chicago area with her husband and three boys, the oldest of which is disabled and of whom you will hear quite a bit about during this conversation because it's very relevant. She is a licensed therapist, owns her own therapy practice, in fact, and I'm so grateful for the skills that she has in that department and that she's willing to kind of share those with us as we record these episodes about really tough topics together. So thank you, Amanda. She is a lover of jogging and of her bed. All right, let's dive in. Hi, Amanda. Welcome back to the show. Hello. Thank you. This is exciting. Episode number 10 that we've done together, which is, it feels like an anniversary. Like, oh, it's a special one. Yeah. I like it. (laughs) So today's topic is another heavy one. Surprise, surprise. And I'm excited to tackle this one. This is definitely something that I was kind of surprised. And then now that I think about it more, I'm like, okay, actually, this makes a lot of sense. But it kind of was the idea for this episode came up when we were working on the episode about our children passing away. And someone said, actually, my biggest fear, I think we even read this one in that episode. Actually, my biggest fear is my child living longer than me for me passing away first. And I was like, what? But then like the more I was thinking about it, I was like, yep, makes sense. And then we opened it up to listeners on Instagram to like share their thoughts or their fears and things around this. And holy cow, it was another like, okay, this is a really big topic that we need to cover. So I'm grateful that you are willing to dive into this with me today because it's a, it's a big one. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that sticks out just, you know, before we jump in is kind of the selflessness of it that so many of us as disability parents, we see our role in life as protecting our child. And it literally feels like I would rather like suffer the pain of their loss than know that they're going to be out there in the world living without me. Who's going to take care of them and who's going to do it as well as I do. And so I think it just highlights to me the like ultimate sacrifice of being a parent, which means at the end of the day, if they're suffering without me and I can't take care of them, like that's my biggest heartbreak. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We had a listener recording submitted kind of about this. Let's go ahead and listen to that. The question of what happens to my child after I die brings up a lot of emotions for me, including stress, anger, and grief. My daughter is 15 months old and she has a rare genetic mutation. There are only a few others that we know of with this mutation, and so it is hard to know what her future will look like. This mutation causes a lot of medical issues and developmental delay. My husband and I have talked a lot about this, and it feels like there's two terrible options. The first is that she passes away before us, and we have to go through the grief and process of losing her. The second option is that she outlives us. And then I worry about who will care for her and how well they will care for her. It just feels like two impossible choices. And it's not fair that we have to even think about this and go through this. It makes me sad and angry that this is something that we think about quite often. Mm, Don't you feel that? Mm -hmm. Like, pick your poison. They both suck. Mm -hmm. I think that's a lot of people said they feel like they can't even think about this topic. And it's probably comes Mm -hmm. down to like a lot of that too, of like either option is horrible. Oh yeah. There's no preferable option here. And I think even in non-disability parenting, we look at it and we think like, okay, the natural course of events is that, you know, you have a baby, baby grows up, you become a grandparent, eventually you die, but your kid is self-sufficient, right? And there might be a fear of like, I'm going to miss out on my grandkids, or I'm going to miss out on 
whatever, but it's not this fear of like, is my kid going to be okay without me? There comes that time for parents of non-disabled kids when they're like, my child is grown, they're independent, they've launched, like they can take care of themselves now, but we don't have that, many of us as disability parents. And so it just feels so scary, the thought of them having to live without us and we're the person that has taken care of them for their entire life. Yep. It's the whole like, oh, the whole point of being a parent is to prepare your child for when you're not there, right? Like I'm sure everyone's mm-hmm. heard that. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be a slap in the face for so many of us. It's like, well, that's never going to happen. My child cannot live without someone caring for them, you know, in really intense ways. And so, and who better to do that than than us as their parents? And so some of the feelings I kind of want to get into too, that like, just when I asked the audience of like, what does this bring up for you? I picked out a few of these to read off because I think it just kind of captures. And I think it's really validating for anyone who's feeling these things to be like, oh, wow, I'm not the only one (laughs) feeling this about this topic. Mm -hmm. And this was a really hard one to like click on and listen to today. So here are a few of them. Secretly wishing I would outlive him so I never have to worry about it. This is my biggest fear. It haunts me daily. So much visceral anxiety. And there were a lot of other words for that, like panic and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. just this huge fear. And then it's too painful to think about not being there for her. I feel sick when I go there. It's paralyzing. And then another person said, I'm not ready for this. So in denial because it hurts. I might skip this one or just listen in bed. Yeah, again, just like validating it, like all the emotions you might feel right now, like Mm -hmm. listening to this. This is tough stuff. This is really hard. It really is. I was thinking last night, I don't even, it must have been because I knew this recording was coming up, but last night Asher was like getting ready for bed and that's my son. He's 14. He has Prader-Willi syndrome and he was walking around the house kind of so distracted. We were trying to get him to like brush your teeth, go to your room, you know, helping him take his clothes off and get ready for bed. And he physically, he's fairly able, but he needs a lot of prompts to stay on task. And I was just thinking this like intrusive thought popped into my head of like, who's going to be doing this? Like if he lives to be 50, like who's going to compassionately be like, Asher, it's time to brush your teeth. Or, you know, you got to take your medicine before bed. Like, will people be doing that with love or will they be rushing him around and I don't know. It felt like such an intrusive thought. And the same thing as what that person said. I just pushed the thought out of my head and I'm like, don't think about it. It just felt too upsetting to think about that scenario. Yeah. And there's not really like this perfect answer. It's kind of like there's no perfect answer of like, do I die first or do they die first? There's not really like, at least that I've seen, there's not like this, oh, don't worry. I actually have this all planned out. I have this perfect scenario of like, who's going to take care of him? Like there isn't really... And that kind of gets us into our first little section of, so just to give a little intro, we have this episode broken up into sections of like questions people have and that we don't necessarily have great answers for, but who will care for my child? How will they ever replace my care? How will my child feel? And what can I do now to prepare and financially handle that? Mm Mm-hmm. So going into that first section of who will care for my child, right? That, That thought that popped into your head of like, well, I love Asher in a way that, will anyone else really ever love him this way? No. So who else is going to do this once I'm gone? And I think like an automatic answer that I've heard a lot in this community is like siblings, right? Like that's kind of like this, well, they're going to be in a similar age as them. We assume they'll still be living, you know, alongside my child. And so Maybe that person could be the next best thing from a parent. But that's a loaded thing too. That That's not the simple oh, don't worry, my other child will just handle all the care, right? That's not the simple thing. No way. And and like, who who am I to like put that responsibility on my other child, children that never asked for that, you know? It's one thing to say like, okay, yeah, like at holidays or times like that, like, of course, I hope that Asher is cared for in that way and goes over to their house and celebrates with them. And, you know, he's not going to be able to have a spouse or kids. So of course, my expectation is that like, He'll be brought into family stuff, of course, but like I will never have the expectation that he's going to live with one of his brothers and potentially compromise like my other kids, like romantic relationships or families or, you know, if my other boys become dads someday, like, you know, you just think like, I cannot put that expectation on them. 
and just assume that they're going to be up for it because you don't want them to be resentful getting involved in something that they never willingly signed up for. Yeah. Is it in the back of my mind that I hope like how amazing would it be if they if they willingly did that? Of course, but I would never make that expectation. Yeah. What you describe is like the difference between inclusion, right? Which is like, yeah, mm-hmm. of course, like treat him like a family member versus like taking over basically his parenthood. Those are very different yes. things. And, you know, it's a tricky one because it is like, I think it'd be ideal if your other child, well, not ideal, ideal would be us being able to do it. But like the second yeah. best would be like, oh, the sibling feels so excited and honored to take his care on and he does a great job, right? Like that would be amazing, but it's just not necessarily reality. And then like, so a few people said, I don't want them in a care facility, but how do I ask that of their sibling, right? So that's that's what we're talking Mm -hmm. about. They may be willing now, but I don't want them to feel trapped in the future. So that's even like, you know, you may have conversations right now with siblings and they may be like, of course, but like how much do they really understand what that would entail and things change over the years. I mean, we're talking a lot of these parents that we're including in this are like their kids are pretty young still. And so like. You know, we're talking, hopefully, we'll live long enough to, you know, for it to be like 30, 50, 60 years from now. And so a lot can change. That I think that feels really scary to be like, oh, sure, they're saying yes now. But like, I feel bad even asking that of them. And what if they change their mind? And also, it's not just them, right? Like, they have to get buy-in from if they get married someday and have a partner. Maybe they go on to have children of their own. Like, what a huge burden to put on to this family that they never asked. Like, does that mean that, okay, if... Silas, my middle son, if he gets married, then before he can propose or whatever to the love of his life, he has to get their buy-in that that person's willing to like house his older brother for the rest of their life. You know, like it's, it's not even just our kid, it's our kid's family system as well. And that impacts everything. And so I don't know that we can make that expectation that that care is just going to be there. Who's going to pay for that, right? There's so many questions involved. Yeah, and even like going back to like one of our first episodes together about family planning, which we'll link in the show notes because that's a really good one if you haven't listened to it yet. Mm -hmm. There were several people who were like, my disabled child is my one child and I'm considering having more. And I'll admit that part of that reason is like, I don't want my child by themselves after I pass away. So that could either be, I want them to care for that child. Like we're talking about more intensely, like them living together or just the inclusion part, like, you know, having them over for holidays and having like a family to go to. And so, I mean, I I think it's, it's something that a lot of parents were talking about with some level of guilt of like, that they would consider having a child kind of like for their disabled child. But it kind of goes back to like, we would do anything. We would do anything for that child. And so I think Mm -hmm. it kind of makes sense that that's where our brain goes. Like, how can I Mm -hmm. ensure their care? Wouldn't it be great if they had this loving sibling that could help with that after I'm gone? Yeah, I think in my head, I've sort of like idealized or the way that I call my anxiety around this is I'm like, I'm going to work really hard to find like a group home that is great and supportive and kind and has good people working there. I mean, I just have sort of convinced myself that this magical place is out there and I'm going to find it and we're going to do whatever we need to do to get Asher in it is definitely some like magical thinking involved there, but I'm okay with that right now. You know, we've got some time before we will have to make this decision, but I know for me, that kind of brings me peace to be like, I'll never put him in a place that I don't trust. I'm going to do drop-in visits, you know, assuming obviously I'm still around, but like the way that we're planning for this is by trying to be intentional about and reminding myself that like, you know, Asher will see his friends and his brothers go off to college. And I do think he'll have some awareness about like, oh, I'm not doing that. What's my next step? So I'm hoping that when the day comes for him to go to someplace besides our home, that he can see it as like, this is what independence looks like for you. If, I mean, I don't know. Maybe yeah. this is this make-believe story that I'm telling myself, but that's sort of how I come to peace with it right now. But also there's so many holes in that story. You know, there's so many potential landmines, but that's how I call my anxiety right now. Yeah, I think that's really smart because it's not relying on the sibling. Because I think that like our other children, you know, if they are in the picture, 
we are responsible for their happiness too. And so I think that feels very conflicting of being like, oh my gosh, like I would, what would that mean for that child? But then to say like, okay, I'm going to do due diligence and like work really hard to find this fantastic place. I think that that can feel like so much more like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'll find someone like they're getting paid for it. Like this is their job yep. and they're going to have great staff. There's this one, <laughs> I feel like kind of like a monster reading this. There's this quote too from a message that someone sent in. So she was kind of saying similar things as you, Amanda, of like, oh, it would be great to find like this great place to have him live. Even if we found some kind of facility that we felt would take good care of her, companies are bought, leadership changes, policies change, money factors in, staff turns over, and in the long run, I wouldn't feel good about it. So I guess in general, it makes me feel nauseous. I mean, I don't know if that's what the holes you're, you're referring to, or it's kind of like mm-hmm. you could do all the research you can. And then at the end of the day, like it really is, you're like, okay, this is the best I can do. And hopefully there's some amount of like letting go of the control we don't have, you know, like those things she just listed out of like, I can't control those things happening. And I guess in that case, the sibling thing is ideal where like, if they're like a trust of like their brother's care, they can be like, hey, this place looks really dodgy now. We're going to find somewhere else for him to live. Yeah, so siblings or cousins or I don't know. I just think all of this is kind of based on the assumption that I'm going to be able to plan for this, right? That I'm not going to like die today or something. But that that thought of like, I hope to plan enough padding around him of a support system, whether it's like, you know, his cousins, his siblings, his really close friends that he goes to school with, whatever, some peer support system that is willing to like take on making sure that he's cared for in an appropriate and safe way. Not everybody has that community, you know? Yeah. Like this one listener said, there is not a single friend or family member who is equipped or willing to care for my son. I need to figure out a plan in the event that an accident or tragedy happens, but I'm so debilitatingly anxious about it that I don't even know where to start. And so that's kind of more referring, right, to like you mentioned, like we're talking as if like, oh, sure, we'll die when we're like 80 or 90 years old. But like we all know that doesn't always happen. Like like you say, one of us could die today on the way to a doctor's appointment, whatever. Like that's not guaranteed. And so I think there's also this factor, this part of it where it's like not only are we talking about planning for like if we pass away like of old age, but we're also talking about like the risk of like any one of us could die from something else happening. And I think that's especially debilitating where you're just like, who do I know right now that'd be willing to take that on? And like this one mom said, she's like, there is not a single friend or family member who's willing to do that. So what are they supposed to do? Right? Like that is right. such a like horrible question. <laughs> and so I don't know if there really is a great answer, but like, I don't know. Right. What do they do in that situation? I mean, it feels like as depressing as it is, would it be helpful for her to now connect with a lawyer and come up with a plan or something. I don't know. I mean, and I know probably there's a lot of people that are in that boat where it's like, at the end of the day, there really is no one that I have in my life that could appropriately care for my child. Like that is such an overwhelming feeling and so much pressure too. Yeah. And one thing we haven't mentioned a whole lot yet is systemic issues where it's like, This conversation, like, and, you know, we're talking from the perspective of being in the U.S. and stuff, but, like, this conversation wouldn't necessarily be this daunting and as forlorn if, like, there were some good systems in place for this kind of thing. Like, what do we do with people who, if, like, there's a child that's very medically complex and their parents pass away and they don't have family or friends, like, what do we do with this child? Or, like, even after they're an adult and the parents pass away, like, I know that in other countries they might have, you know, systems in place for that kind of thing and like taking really good care of them. And and we don't necessarily have great systems for that. Yeah. I mean, from what I understand, if like we were to die without a will, wouldn't our child go into the system potentially? If like a close family member, a sibling or something doesn't step in to take them, wouldn't they go into foster care at that point? Probably. Doesn't that just make you sick? Like, no, no, no. These kids, you know, it's a complicated issue with any child, but like you throw in the disabilities and medical complexities in oh there. My and it's gosh. like, no, 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 and no. <laughs> oh my gosh. I hope this episode is not just like stressing people out to no end. Like I'm not trying to like bring up here are all all the fears you have. Well, we do at the end, we are gonna offer 
a little bit of a to-do of what you can do to try and plan. So it's not totally hopeless, guys. But yeah, I think we're acknowledging how hard this topic is and how loaded it is and how to the listener who said, I just avoid it anytime this pops in my head. Yeah, I can tell why. It's very complicated. Yeah, I think easy to spiral. Mm-hmm. Oh, which reminds me, there's this other great recording from Magdalena. So let's listen to that about this topic. Even when I'm only sick, my son's care is significantly affected. My husband is incredibly capable, but the majority of the care and information are my responsibility. How would I ever be able to write down the five years of knowledge and experience that is stored in my own head and in my mother's intuition? How on earth could I ever prepare enough? Financially? Practically? Emotionally? This question terrifies me to the point of immobility. I can't even start writing things down, because that would mean I have to think about one of my worst nightmares. How would my son know what has happened? He's deaf and nonverbal. Would he ever understand where I'd gone? How would he know that I love him if I'm not here to hug him? I love him every day by giving him the best life I can. I can't do that if I'm not here. And then in those dark moments when your mind begins to spiral, a single thought creeps in. Someone could probably do it all better than me. Ooh, yeah. I feel like that hit the nail on the head. A lot of things on the head. And I think like that question of like, how do I even, let's say we find someone to take care of our child, right? So like, the siblings willing or we have this great care facility like how or like you're preparing for a tragic like early death how do I even begin to record all the little things about my child that are like just they take that much more time and effort to learn because they don't have the traditional ways of communicating you know like your typical person and so I mean yeah I think that's where trust comes in like trusting that somebody that you would leave your child to is competent and will take it seriously and like is attuned to your child's needs. Like I'm always surprised when like Asher just got a new teacher and how I gave her as much information as I could, but the more time she spends with him, the more I can tell she's getting to know him and she's starting to pick up on the things that feel difficult to explain and that you just kind of have to be around to get. And so my hope is that somebody that I would choose that I would entrust to care for Asher if I wasn't here, that that would be a really important characteristic of somebody is that you know that they're going to take it seriously and they're attuned to your child and they're like observant enough and will spend enough time with your kid to like pick up on all those nonverbal things. But I mean, that's a huge thing to trust someone to do. Yeah. And I think like if you're looking at your relationship with your child today, you can be like, I know everything about my child like how do you even quantify or write that down or describe it but I think that there could be some comfort in like assuming you have like a trusted person taking over their care you can maybe look back and be like well when they were born I had no idea what I was doing Mm -hmm. right like I think that's like a very common feeling among disability parents is like I had no clue and it took time right it took time like you say to learn all the different little quirks or different ways of communicating And then like the bigger things like their medical cares and things like that. But like, I guess just the fact that like, because you were able to learn it as their parent, like this other carer can do the same thing. And can they ever truly replace our care as a parent? I don't think so. And I think that's really interesting Mm -hmm. that Magdalena went there, like where she's like, oh my gosh, who could ever care for my child the way I could? And then this thought of like, eh, they could probably do it better than me. I think that speaks to our insecurity, right? That speaks to our insecurity of like, am I doing a good job? Am I doing enough? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we all have those thoughts. Like I failed at this. I feel like Asher has an orthopedic appointment coming up because we totally missed that he has scoliosis. And now at age 14, it's like coming on strong. And I just feel so much guilt. And yeah, those thoughts pop in my mind. Are like all the other parents are doing better than me. Like, I think that's such a normal thing. Like that, connection of like nobody can do it as good as me and also I'm doing such a terrible job (laughs) yeah yeah that just speaks to our insecurities as parents totally and I think like that also goes back to like the fact that there's so much care needed for them there are a million ways to fall short 
And we're humans with jobs and relationships and hobbies too. We're trying to Mm -hmm. live our lives too and be full-time caretakers. Yeah. And I guess the X factor here is like, oh, but like, that's not the mom or the dad. Right. And so I think that's Mm -hmm. kind of like Mm -hmm. going both ways. Right. Like, so yeah, that's not the mom or the dad. So they can't care for my child the same way. And they're not the mom or the dad. So they can't care for them the way I do, you know, like in kind of a confidence booster kind of way. And then another thing I wanted to address too, she mentioned in there is the child's feelings about it all. Like at what level will they understand? Like where'd mom go? Like, why isn't she here anymore? And like kind of feelings of like desertion or something. I mean, that's like, honestly, that probably, that sounds like the most horrible aspect of all of this is like them feeling deserted in some way. Yes, because our kids go through so much. Some of them go through a lot of medical stuff and just home is a place where our kids feel safe and understood and comfortable. And that's not an experience that they have everywhere they go, especially if they have communication difficulties to know that like when they're home, their mom or dad understands them. Their mom or dad knows their routine, knows what they like to eat for breakfast or whatever. And yeah, the thought of our kids being thrown into a situation where they're not known and where they're questioning, where's my mom, where's my dad, to me feels absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, because I think there's like this aspect of like, especially when they're intellectual disabilities, which I think is kind of like, we're kind of assuming that's the situation for a lot of Mm -hmm. these kids is like, there's almost this like, not to infantize them, but there is a little bit of like this feeling of like, they rely on my care in the same way that an infant does. Definitely. Or a toddler or like whatever. I don't know. There's a spectrum, obviously. But like it almost feels akin to like a toddler, like a two-year-old or a baby being like, okay, but like where'd my mom go? Like, mm-hmm. you know, that level of understanding and like not being able to grasp like she would be here if she could. Mm-hmm. Which, oh my gosh. That just, I, <laughs> that's really hard to go there. Yeah, that one's heartbreaking. And I mean, even thinking of like my son, like I said, he's 14. Like he is in a lot of ways, he's like becoming a man, right? Like, Mm -hmm. but cognitively, he is still a little kid in so many ways. And that's even harder in some ways, because he doesn't, he presents to the world as a teenager. Like when people see him, they assume, oh, is he in driver's ed or whatever? But you know, as soon as he talks, they recognize no. But I think that how important it is for him and all kids to have a grown up with them who can help them navigate the world. Like the world doesn't view Asher as a little kid. And so the thought of him being out there without a parent or a grown up with him to me feels so scary because what's expected of him is that of what's expected of teenagers, you know, if he was just out in public by himself or something. Yeah. That makes me think of like this message from this parent that kind of hits on that. She said, I understand it's bad, but I hope she goes first. Okay, now we all understand it's not bad, right? We're all talking about all the reasons that's not yes, like, yes. that might sound really like jarring to someone who doesn't understand, but we get it. Yeah. The world we live in is not kind to people with disabilities, ones that are medically complex and need to fight for themselves constantly. The systems are not set up for them. Day by day, we hear more stories about the abuse suffered by children like my child. She's been loved her whole life, and even when it's hard, she's comforted by us. I can't imagine her having to suffer abuse and feeling unloved, but also not having the capability to understand why we aren't there anymore to love and protect her. The systemic changes that need to take place to make this world nice for her will not happen in our lifetime. We can try to make change and each little bit helps, but it won't be achieved anytime soon. Mm. Yeah, gosh, that's hard. That's really hard. (laughs) We're staring something in the face that I think is, it's like kind of every parent's worst nightmare is like, that that will happen to our child. Yeah. That they'll be in that statistic of like being abused even. You know, we were talking about not being able to be loved quite the same way as us. But like, I mean, there's the other end of the spectrum. It's like, yeah, but like, what if they're abused? And again, Mm -hmm. I think this is when you're like, oh, I hope I have like a trusted person who they're in charge of that care. So like, oh, but Silas has been visiting that home and he saw some red flags and he pulled him out, right? Like that kind of thing. You really want that kind of thing. And, you know, I'm just sitting here being like, Maybe that's not too much to ask of people that have other kids, right? Or like cousins or something like, I don't know. That feels a lot different than the expectation of being like, your brother's going to live with you, right? Being like, you know, if your brother is in a place where other people are taking care of him, like it would mean so much to me if you could visit once in a while. 
that just feels like I'm going to do that. So hopefully it's not some burden. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. I guess we keep going back to siblings. I know that's something that you and yeah. I think about a lot because we do. We have other kids and not everyone does. And of course, but... there's people that don't have. I think that's important to acknowledge too. And and in their case, maybe they can think about a cousin or. Who would like be yeah, this like stand in. Would... But like as far as a sibling specifically, I guess, go. I've thought about this too because I'm like, well, Wendy's been through hell. She didn't pick this. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, right. it's not like they're like these innocent bystanders that haven't already been scathed by it. Yeah, true. Just really hard stuff. And so I think like it's important to remember that like our whole family goes through this stuff together. It's not like an isolated thing. It's not just our mm. disabled child. It's not just the primary caregiver in that child. It's the whole family in different ways. Yeah. But we're all going through it. And so I think, yeah, the responsibility of like visiting a sibling in a care facility will take effort, but I, I would like to think in an ideal world, it would be something they naturally want to do, right? If they have that yeah. relationship with that sibling. And I don't think it's too much to ask. I mean, like, I don't know if there are any like siblings of disabled people listening right now, like, oh, that's such a toxic way to think of it. But like, to yeah. me, it feels reasonable. Oh, that's a really good point. I think I focus so much on being like, I don't want my other kids to feel burdened. I don't want my other kids to feel burdened. I don't want to like parentify them or put this big expectation on them. But then I'm kind of like, well, we are a family and their brother does matter to them. And I'm not saying that they have to live two houses down from the group home, but it doesn't feel unreasonable to say like, hey, once a month, can you get out there? Or can you have a friend get out there if you can't make it? Yeah. Delegating maybe, but still like overseeing. And I think especially if it's like a cousin or something where they're not necessarily, yeah, might not have that close relationship. But just like, can you just like manage this? Even if it is like just checking in maybe once a quarter, just be like, are there any like weird things going on? How are they treating him? I don't know. Because I think just like with like elder abuse, it's the patients that don't have people coming in to visit them that are at risk, right? Like it's like if there's a patient or a resident that once a week they have a family member come in, they're probably going to be less likely to be harmed because the employees know that there's accountability there. Yeah. And I really like to like kind of going back to what you said earlier, your plan is to like get Asher settled in, in a facility before you pass away. So I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it sounds a lot scarier to be like, I will care for him till my dying day. And then I hope that they, you know, pick a good facility or like then they go to this facility and that's the one I want. Like that seems, I would feel a lot less control over that. So I think like the idea of like, oh, I'll get them settled in first. I'll have a relationship with the facility. And then when I pass away, I'll delegate the whole like keeping an eye on things to someone else. Yeah. In fact, that's like already on my to-do list. Like I said, he's 14 now. There's a number of big group homes right around here. And I also know that there's Prater Willie group homes in different states too. Wow, that's cool. And so I'm trying to decide, like, I want to tour some of these places. I want to get a view for it. I want to start thinking about where would I see him almost in a way like a college visit, you know, like, where would he want to go? Where does he like what feels good to him, too? And, you know, knowing like within his limited cognition, but like, instead of this being something that I dread and fear, can it be something that I face with confidence and almost trying to be like, this is just our next step. This is something that feels hopeful for Asher like he'll get to go to a home where he has people his age and where he can build relationships and instead of it being like oh I'm sad when my kid doesn't go to college maybe it can just be like his path just looks different and I'm trying to adapt this is his version exactly he's not just like not getting any Christmas presents he's getting Elmo presents like they're different than what I thought but exactly that's right that's right (laughs) that's right right and of course there's grief intertwined in these stories too but also Mm -hmm. like on a good day when I can access it, I can be like, no, this is us like trying to face this head on and trying to be proactive. And I think like, I love the idea of that. And I am also thinking like, while you're saying that, like, you're going to go check them out now. I'm like, I think that's one thing that's really hard for a lot of parents of like, knowing like, I'll never be an empty nester because my Mm -hmm. child needs like this intense care. And I think that that would be something interesting to look into of like, putting this thought out there is it possible for us to swing like looking into like would she be really happy at a group home and would that actually be really good for me and my relationship with my spouse and like we could visit her all the time and get her all settled before you know we might pass away so I think that's something to think about too Mm -hmm. and one thing I'm also like pushing back against myself but Maddie what about people who are like we are struggling to make ends meet like we are absolutely so so spent financially 
I mean, what advice do you have for people like that where they're like, great, that's great for Amanda, but like, we can't afford that. A hundred percent. That is a very real thought, right? Like who's paying for this magical group home? And of course, yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, there are like a few kind of financial moves that you can make to try and like be proactive. And just a really simple thing that I would suggest is like, if you have like birthdays or your child's like graduation or things like that, like it could be a mindful step to say like any monetary gifts we're putting into like a special needs trust or an ABLE account, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But like when you ask for gifts, instead of getting like a toy or something that maybe your kid doesn't need, maybe grandma gives you a hundred dollars and you deposit it into their account and you really like try to be intentional about saving that way. And if you ever can put 50, a hundred dollars in it, like, especially if your kid is like two now, you know, you have a long time to save and to just square away. So I know that it feels like overwhelming when you think about what that number really looks like. I can't imagine the cost, but also there's disability. There's other things that can also help you once your child reaches a certain age and maybe even now they're getting disability funds too. So a few years ago, my husband and I, we did a financial planning, like we met with a financial planner. And part of what we learned from that was about estate planning for when you're a disability parent. So we found a lawyer in Chicago that specializes in disability law. And, you know, there's one in every state. The laws vary slightly by state. So you want to go to one within your state. And basically we learned that at a certain point, at a certain age, I can't remember if it's 18, I think it is 18. Again, I'm not a lawyer, so don't take my legal advice. But <laughs> when your child reaches a certain age, they start qualifying for disability. And that's like a certain amount of money that they get each month. However, in order to qualify for that, they can have like very minimal assets. So if you had like a normal savings account that you opened up at the bank with $10,000 in it, that would disqualify your child from getting disability mm. benefits. It's so messed up, right? Because basically like your disabled child has to be basically broke in order to get government assistance in the United States. There's two workarounds from that. One is what's called an ABLE account. And that stands for achieving a better life experience. And the other option is a special needs trust. So these are two things that you could go to a lawyer and you could decide what's best for your family and for your situation. And the lawyer can help you set it up. We ultimately, I think, actually ended up doing both. So a special needs trust is managed by a trustee, which means a trusted kind of loved one, somebody that you trust to facilitate the special needs trust. And so like the sibling or the cousin that we were talking exactly. about. Exactly. And obviously you want to talk to this person ahead of time and make sure that they feel comfortable doing this. The money is taxable each year. There's very specific things that the money in a special needs trust can go for. It is used to pay for certain extra expenses that aren't covered, I think, under disability. And also in a special needs trust, I believe you can put like property in it. Like I think you could put like your house in it or something. You can put things in it that once you die can go to your child without them losing their disability benefits. An mm -hmm. ABLE account is a newer concept and you can only use an ABLE account if their disability has appeared before the age of 26. That's like an important thing. So, which is like, which everyone. is pretty much yeah. all of our kids. And this can pay for a wider range of things. And also there's a maximum of $16,000 per year. This, I think that was in like 2022 that might've changed that you can put in per year. And this can pay for a wider range of things in the special needs trust, education, employment, training, food, housing, transportation. So if somebody, for example, lives in a group home, they can have like a debit card that goes towards their ABLE account and they could go to the store and buy like lotion or shampoo or conditioner, stuff like that. Um, so there's a little bit more flexibility with the ABLE account, but either way, these are great resources to get set up with. Also, full disclosure, I think it cost us about $5,000 of lawyer fees to do this. So it wasn't cheap, but I will say that that money was very well spent and eases my anxiety knowing that like we have a clear setup of if we both die, our house goes into a trust and that goes to the person that is taking Asher so that they could like have access to our house and sell it or whatever. And then also there's an ABLE account that Asher would have money when he turns a certain age. So it's all very complicated, but yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's kind of like what you and I were talking about before we started this recording of like this episode is not intended to be like here is exactly what you need to do, right? Otherwise, we would have had like a lawyer on this episode, yes. which tell me if you guys want that because we could look into doing that at some point. But like this is definitely to put these things in your heads. So you're like, okay, like these are things to think about. There are some tools yes. out there. And Amanda, I know you're not like a legal professional, but like what would you say? Like if you were in the shoes where you like literally like barely make it by, like we do not have 5000 mm-hmm. to spend, not mm-hmm. even 1000 to spend on this kind of thing, what would you do? Like would you maybe just like write up like a Word document of like here's what I want – Here's how to access this account. Here's the care plan. I'm pretty sure actually that you can create an ABLE account without a lawyer. So I would say look into that. I don't think you have to have a lawyer to do it. A lawyer just makes it easier. And maybe, you know, you search in your area, in your state for pro bono lawyers, or you find a disability lawyer that's willing to do it at a discount, or you go to a disability center and see if they offer legal services. Like, I would say this is something that feels really important. So see what you can do and what resources are out there to make it affordable. And then that's where you just put a little bit away every birthday, you know, at graduation. Mm -hmm. If you get a bonus at work, can you put $200 in your child's ABLE account? Like, what do you need to try and calm your anxiety around this? Because it's just this little step. Like there's so much in this that's out of our control, right? And this is just a small step that we can take to be like, hey, I know I have that ABLE account. I know that I have a will drawn up where if something happens to me, I, I chose who my child's going to go to. Like, you know, and and I know for me, it's like there's so much stress in all of this and fear, but like at least I know I have put a little thought into it. And if the absolute worst happens, like, we're not starting over. Like there is like I let the person know that's going to get Asher. Like if something happens to us, do you have questions? You know, that person knows Asher and I make a point for them to interact and so it's like being as proactive yeah. as I can and it definitely does soothe my anxiety around this. Yeah, I think that is cuz like the different people who say like this is paralyzing and debilitating and I think that makes yeah. so much sense, especially going through like all the reasons that we have to be so overwhelmed by this, but at the same time I mean, like, I'm sure you teach this, like, as a therapist, like, the thing to do to ease that is to actually take some steps towards, like, taking whatever control you do have and doing those things. And I think that you're absolutely right. I think that's going to be what actually gives us some Mm -hmm. ease of mind of, like, I'm figuring it out. I I don't have all the answers. It's not perfect. It still keeps me up at night to even think about this. But, you know, I did open this account or, you know, whatever little step you can do. And I think, like, kind of going back to, to what that parent was saying of, like, how could I ever record or write down all the different finesse things, we'll start right mm-hmm. now, right? Like in case that, that did happen, especially like if it happened tragically and you passed away without warning, like to have a document that does have this cheat sheet of like, you will not know my child perfectly through this thing, but this will give you a really good start on, and even just like, here's the whole care yeah. team, right? Yeah, like, here's the doctors. Here's all the different doctors that you need to know right. about. And, and and just here's how they get the equipment they need or the supplies they need. And so I think- just starting and just maybe getting a cheap little notebook or I'll link in the show notes to a bunch of resources different parents have created mm-hmm. to like keep track of the medical mm-hmm. cares and like the ins and outs of my child for things like babysitters yep. but this would work really well if someone's taking over the care completely if you identify somebody that's going to be taking care of your child maybe you make a point twice a year to go spend a weekend with that person with your kid or maybe you make a point to just be like I want to make sure that you know my child so if it's somebody important enough for you to entrust them with the care of your child, then it's definitely a relationship worth investing in. Yeah. And I guess it's like, I just hope that everyone listens. I know that not everyone does, but wouldn't that be awesome if everyone had someone that close? And I know that mm-hmm. you've said this before in like our self-care episode of like, what can you do now to nurture yeah. a relationship like that? Maybe you don't have someone like that in your life right now, but is there someone that you're like, oh, you know, that cousin or whatever like maybe we could work on that relationship and invest in that to try to get it to the point where I'd have someone like that in my life in my child's life yeah absolutely it's a tough one this is really hard stuff Mm -hmm. and it's a lot of really uncomfortable thoughts and feelings no doubt about that none of us want to be thinking about this but I think it's the kind of thing where if we face it and we try to think about it it's going to take away some of the discomfort just a little bit yeah I really like that Well, 
Amanda, thank you so much. Is there like one last tidbit you would like to leave with listeners today about this topic before we wrap up? One thing that I was thinking is maybe you work backwards. Maybe you're like, I don't have anyone in my life that I could trust to do this, but I really like that person that I really like the way they parent, you know, my neighbor or something. I really like what I see. So I'm going to like get to know them a little bit more and like, this is a big ask, but I want to find somebody. I want to be intentional about this. You know, don't be afraid to like be the weirdo that like, like these are the things we do for our kids, right? It's such a crazy thing to be like, hey, will you raise my kid if I die? Like number one, the likelihood of that happening is slim, but also like maybe just be the weirdo and say it. And, you know, and, <laughs> and, and I just think most people are going to be like, oh my gosh, like, I'm so honored. Like, of course, like, you know, what do I need to know? Yeah. You know, like, I hope that people would have that reaction. So don't be afraid to be the person mm -hmm. that makes other people feel a little uncomfortable by doing that. If it's going to alleviate your anxiety, ultimately, I know for me, even the person that I asked, yeah. I'm very close to, and it was still kind of like, Hey, this is weird, but <laughs> Would you mind? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it really does. We just did that, like we were talking about it with my sister, who we asked to like take the kids if something happens. And the other day at lunch, I was like, do you have anyone like that? She's like, no. And she was like, would you and Justin be okay doing that for us, for our son? And I was like, yes. And I was like, oh my gosh, I feel so like honored. And it also just feels kind of like a, this is like oh yeah a really big deal but it's important. And I think like you mentioned too, like it's important to acknowledge that like this is not like this like us tragically passing away early is not this like really likely thing so I think like that's one thing to remember is like this is like a worst case scenario we're preparing for that you know anyway yeah Whew. there we go we did we it, did it. <laughs> thank we you did so it. much Amanda that was a I think it was a really of important course. conversation and I as always really appreciate your wisdom as Asher's mom and as a clinician and all the things so thank you thank you you can find links in the show notes for several tools that have been created by families for families wishing to document what their child's care entails, as we mentioned in the episode. You can also find links to the episodes mentioned in this conversation in the show notes, as well as the other nine episodes that Amanda has joined me on. Thank you, Amanda. Also, a huge thank you to our editor slash producer slash graphic designer, Alyssa Newtile. As I mentioned before this episode started, she designed some awesome stickers for our sticker club. So if you have not seen them yet, definitely go check them out. You can find them at therarelife.org backslash sticker club. And thanks again for everyone who has joined that and put your support towards this organization. Join us next week for season eight's finale episode. For those who don't know, finale episodes are a chance for me to reflect on the season, share some updates and behind the scenes, and give you a sneak peek at the topics for season nine, which starts January 18th. This time I'm joined by none other than Alyssa Newtile, and it is a very fun one. Don't miss it. See you then.